Welcome to Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. I am your host, Carter Hockman, and joining me this week is former New York Cosmos and U.S. Men's National Team goalkeeper, Shep Messing. Thank you so much for taking the time, Shep. Hey, Carter, my pleasure. Anytime I can talk goalkeeping, I'm there for you. Absolutely. So before we get into everything, I'll kick us off with my first question that I ask everyone, which is when did you know that you wanted to become a goalkeeper? What, what drew you to the position? That's a great question because I'm going to give you, I'm sure, a pretty atypical answer. Carter, I never saw a soccer ball until I was 16 years old. And even when I think about it now, it's hard to believe uh, that's the first time I saw a soccer ball. And when I was in it, my 10th grade of school, the soccer coach came over to me. He had an injury. They had a very good uh, team, but he needed a goalkeeper. And he said, you know, I know you're an athlete. Come watch your game and tell me if you'll give it a shot. And Carter, I went to watch the game. I saw 10 guys running like crazy, six, seven miles a game. And I saw the guy standing in goal, just dressed in all black and look, looking pretty cool. So I, I said, I'll give it a try. And, uh, we won the championship that year, and I never looked back. So growing up in the Bronx in the 50s and 60s, you kind of already answered it, but because I genuinely don't know, what drew you to playing soccer? I have to tell you also, it's, it's, my mother was actually born in, in Dublin, in Ireland, and my older brother uh, was a fantastic player. Uh, played in college, two years older than me, uh, was about to make the Olympic team, the U.S. team, but had a knee injury. So soccer was always kind of floating out there. I had been so consumed with uh, the other sports that until I stepped into goal, I really didn't know how much I'd love it. So at this point, you know, you mentioned you playing, uh, you'd played basketball, you played football. What led you to ultimately deciding, OK, I, I, I want to stick with soccer and see where this takes me? You know, I'll never forget the moment, Carter. And I think if you speak to athletes in any sport, there was a moment where they said, you know what, I could be really good at this. And, and I was a, a freshman in college at NYU, and they had a very good goalkeeper on NYU's team, a very international team, a Cuban goalkeeper. I'll never forget his name, Emilio Escaladas. And he was the starting goalkeeper, uh, a senior. And we went away again. I was a freshman. We went to a preseason camp. And there was a moment in the game. I was in the game. And a guy blasted a shot from eight yards out. I got a hand on it. He followed up, hit the rebound, 70 miles an hour. I dove and just stuck it, caught it clean, came down. And after the game, the varsity coach, George Vargas, he said, you're my starting goalkeeper. So that one play, that double save, I said to myself, you know what? I could be good. There really isn't a better feeling than when you just stick that shot, is there? No, <laughs> you got that right. I can tell you're a former goalkeeper. Look, I ended up, Carter, as you know, playing it at every level, pretty much the highest level. And you never forget, I don't play golf. But I think it's similar when, when you swing and you, you hit a perfect shot in golf. That's the same thing for a goalkeeper. When you're flying and you just nail it, you stick it, and it's poetry in motion. 
Absolutely. I mean, I want to get back to, to high school just a little bit, because aside from the obvious things like shot stopping, what was the focus when you were in high school? What was the focus on goalkeeper training? What went into like a coaching session? Because the position has obviously drastically changed since. Carter, a great, great question. And I talk to young players now. I always tell them they're so fortunate. I ended up playing in high school, zero, zero coaching. Great high school coach. I loved him. Didn't know a thing about goalkeeping. And we just go off on the side, the two goalkeepers, and and create stuff to work on. I went to college. I was a two-time All-American, first at NYU, then at Harvard. Never, ever did I have one goalkeeping training session. It was just goalkeepers go over on the side and work out together. Obviously, in, in college training, at the end of training, players would line up and shoot. But Never had a coach, never had anybody tell me what to do. It wasn't until I made the U.S. Olympic team that I had my first goalkeeping coach. He, he had formerly been the coach of the German national team, Dittmar Kramer. And I was amazed how it was working out with a goalkeeper coach. And I, I'll never forget my first uh, experience with a genuine goalkeeper coach because it was it was almost it was similar in the way where you know, you, you hop into the position, you sort of, you might have a, a predisposed notion of what the position is like, and you've seen it uh, played out in front of you. So you know kind of what you're supposed to do. But when you actually finally get that coaching, it's a whole new world. Yeah, it is. And, and Carter, I don't want to play goalkeeping coaches, but there are lots of different ways to train and you have to make it your own, right? So some goalkeeper trainers work on interval training, do a somersault, jump up, make a reflex save. I, I, I guess in that original German philosophy, it wasn't about interval training. It wasn't about quick up and down. It was about perfect technique. So they'd stand at the outside of the 18-yard box and ping a ball, upper 90 to your left, and you'd have to dive opposite hand over and make a good save, and then analyze your body position. So all different kinds of training, and you got to make it your own. Because at the end of the day, Carter, and you played the position, uh, nobody's in goal with you. So no matter what your goalkeeper coach or your somebody else is telling you, you own it when you step in that goal. I've often gotten good advice along the way, as I'm sure you have. And that same goalkeeper coach told me, don't ever step between the posts unless you are prepared to play and make a save like it's a World Cup game. You know, instead of just going into goal, guys taking shots, you're not diving for them. So that's muscle memory connected to the brain. When I stepped into that goal, I, I didn't do it halfway. Even if it's training, if it's a 10-year-old kid, I'm playing that like it's World Cup game. And that's that's a great point. It's, and especially it sort of takes me to today almost where I will have former teammates ask me, like, hey, do you want to go play pickup and, and, and hop in net? And it's like not I, I, I can't really do that mentally because, you know, you guys are all having fun and playing around and I have to either go 100 percent or it's just not worth it. No, that's totally right. And, and again, I didn't invent it. Top minds all over the world. It, it's muscle memory. So you could fool around, play a pickup game, but just don't play and go. And after practice, when guys are taking shots, if you're going to be lazy, go because, you know, you're just fooling around. 
listen, that that nanosecond in a real game, you don't want that implanted in your brain, right? So when you step between the post, you got to be ready to go. The, the other thing which I touched upon, and I tell uh, many of the goalkeepers today, uh, in, including Tim Howard. Tim Howard was, I'm a broadcaster for Red Bulls and Tim Howard when he was young, um, 17, 18 years old, was sitting on the bench for the team that was then called the Metro Stars. And I'd always put my arm around him and talk to him and give him tips all about technique. So you've got to analyze every movement you make on every ball. Is hand position correct, body position, angle? Everything for me was, was a combination of physics, geometry, and analysis analysis and and then as you also know carter there's nothing like experience right that's why goalkeepers get in their prime later because later on you've seen just about every situation you're going to see in a game and you know how to react i think you and i can can both agree that tim howard did okay with his technique <laughs> I, um, tell, I tell tim right now that i hope i helped you a little bit so I mean, what, what a story he is. What a great career. I want to move to your college career just for a second, because speaking from experience, and especially at the higher levels, Division One, and Division Two soccer, you'll see about 50% of that roster being international. And you kind of, you may have touched on it uh, earlier, but was that the case when you attended NYU and Harvard? Yeah, I, I think, you know, fortuitous for me in terms of my development that I went to two schools that really were dominated by an international student body. NYU just by the nature of where it is in New York. And we drew we drew athletes from Greece and Trinidad and Jamaica, uh, Latin America, South America. So it, it was it was a mix of probably 10 different nationalities. Uh, we had a tremendous international and once again, my teammates, really, I'm, I'm thinking of them now, from England, from Slovenia, from Jamaica, uh, from Greece, from Nigeria, from Gambia. Uh, we actually had three Olympic players on my, my Harvard team. I was playing for the U.S. Charlie Thomas was from Gambia, Felix Adedigi from Nigeria. And, and we actually had a team that went to the Final Four uh, before losing to Howard, who at the time was one of the top uh, colleges predominantly with Caribbean talent. So I, I was thrown into the world of soccer very, very early, the international flavor of it. And, and I was fortunate to have, to have been used to that. You mentioned already that you finished your college career as a two-time All-American. But at what point in your college career are you thinking to yourself, all right, I want to continue to do this professionally? Well, again, Carter, I, you know, players, people ask me all the time, given the nature, the state of soccer, both in the U.S. today and internationally, do I wish I played today, right? Do I wish I had the opportunity of Tim Howard or had and, and played in Europe or played in Major League Soccer with the way it is right now? And my answer is, no way. Never. I cherish the era I played in because to your point, I was just playing for fun. So I got back from the Olympic Games. I was enrolled at Fordham Law School 
and I was playing soccer for three teams on the side, on the in the German American League for an airlines KLM and for a team called the New York Cosmos that had drafted me and I never heard of them. So it, it was a semi pro thing. I was working five jobs and playing just because I loved it. Then Pele came to America and the whole landscape changed. That's the first time I said, you know what, maybe I can make a career out of this. So it wasn't in, it wasn't until that Pele came to America that you said, all right, this is that now now we can make a career out of it. Yeah, Carter, absolutely. You know, my father was an attorney and I I went to him and I said, look, I, Pele's here. Uh, I can't do both. Should I drop out of law school and play soccer or should I forget soccer and and finish law school? And my, my dad was an attorney. He said, Shep. The last thing the world needs is another lawyer. <laughs> go, go pursue what you love. And, and, but even then, Carter, I ended up playing professionally 16 years and I signed a one year contract every year for two reasons. You know, I thought maybe I've had enough and I'm going to do something else. But also, I, the sport was being raised up and I was betting on myself. I didn't want a long term contract. Let me sign one year at a time. And if I'm done at the end of this year, I'm done. But I'll give it up. So back to your point, uh, I love the generation that I played with. Uh, who in the world had the opportunity to, to play with Pelé and Carlos Alberto and Franz Beckenbauer? Uh, my son came to me the other day and he said, you know what, Dad? I, I looked it up and, and I think you played with or against seven of arguably the greatest players in the history of the game. And he, he ticked them off, Pelé and Carlos and Franz and Eusebio and Johan Cruyff. Uh, so my my experience in soccer, I wouldn't trade uh, for anything. What would you say those superstars, when they came to the U.S. and played soccer here, what did they do in terms of changing the way soccer was viewed in the United States? Well, I'll, I'll give you the answer. It, they made it cool. Right. Soccer was not cool until Pele was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Uh, I'm in the magazine in, in People magazine. So soccer became mainstream because America loves store, stars. And, you know, there, there was a, an incident I'll never forget. There was a sports writer named Bob Young in New York who wrote for the Daily News. And he was an old, great journalist, all baseball absolutely all baseball hated soccer what are they doing with the with a soccer ball they're not pro athletes and when pele signed uh young said watch i'm gonna bring pele with me to a new york mets baseball game and nobody's gonna know who he is and i went with pele that day bob young for the daily news walked into what was then shea stadium probably fifty thousand people there and one by one, people started recognizing Pele, and he got a standing ovation that, that lasted for 10 minutes. So, you know, they made it cool. They made soccer. They opened the eyes to the American public to, to what I think is the world's greatest game. Moving back to 1971, it's when you first, it's when you first joined the U.S. men's national team for the Pan American Games, which were in Columbia at the time. What was that initial experience like for you, both 
you know, as a person and more specifically as a goalkeeper? I think, Carter, two things. Look, as a person, anytime you travel, you grow. Anytime you, you see and learn and, and visit a different country, a different culture, different people, I think, I think you're better off for it. So the more I traveled, hopefully the, the more I grew. As a goalkeeper, it was a different level that it didn't shock me, but I loved it. Because what was it? All of a sudden, you're playing for your country. You're playing against Cuba or Colombia or Brazil or Argentina. And it's a whole different level of intensity. It, it really is to any player who's represented their country and and they'll tell you the same thing the intensity the level of competition it's just different when you're playing for a club team look you're all out all in every game but it's it's not the same level of intensity when you're playing country against country and and so it it just made me focus more you, you know for me goalkeeping carter and I think you'll understand it because you're a goalkeeper. People ask me, you know, psychologically, how do you play the position? Well, for me, it's the, it's the combination of the power of a train wreck combined with the psyche of yoga. You've got to be ready to explode, attack the game, attack the ball, but you've got to have the serenity and, and the calm of, of the practice of yoga. So, that's what those first international competitions for me were. Uh, it, it just took it to a different level. That description very much just resonated with me on a different level that I wasn't uh, prepared for. But um, the train wreck and yoga, that's, that's it. That's the one. That's the description. Um, <laughs> Hang on to that one. You'll think yeah. about it, right? That's it. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the one. Um, the, the following year, you're playing in the Olympics in Munich where the team actually went winless with an 0-2-1-1 record, failing to make it to the second round. As a goalkeeper, how did you mentally handle being on arguably the biggest stage next to the World Cup and failing to produce a win? So I look at it the opposite way. And you, again, as a goalkeeper, when you know we have to have selective memory <laughs> or no memory. So I don't look at it. I look at it as one of the greatest achievements I've had in my career. Unbeknownst to most people, the U.S., that U.S. team, we were a bunch of college kids, most of us from St. Louis, a long-haired kid from New York, college kids. It was the first time a U.S. team had ever gone through qualification to make it to the Olympic Games. We'd never done that before. We had only been in the Olympic Games one time 50 years before that, but it, when there was no qualification and the U.S. was just in, in those games. So we went through two years of qualifying and we became the first U.S. team ever to go, go through qualifying and make it to the Olympic Games. So, you know, the record notwithstanding, I love being the first. And, and my teammates and that team, the first one ever to make it to the Olympic Games. How much, was a, how much of a focus was on the men's national team by the American public at the time? I mean, was there a lot of pressure by the fans back home? I feel, I feel as though, especially with social media today, there's a whole new kind of pressure that's put on both the men and women's national teams. Completely correct, Carter. And, and to answer your question, zero. Zero expectation, minimal publicity. 
obviously no social media. Look, when you when you put on uh, that Olympic jacket, tracksuit, T-shirt, you get recognition as an Olympian. But as a soccer team, as a national team, we weren't even on the radar screen. So, you know, sure, a few articles written in Soccer America or a blurb in a, in a local newspaper that one of, one of the residents was going to play in the Olympics, but no expectation, no publicity, uh, no social media. Look, a lot of the women and my friends now, like Michelle Akers, who played on that first U.S. Women's World Cup winning team, Michelle Aker said, look, we came home, there were 10 people at the airport. So I, I think that's across the board in, in sports. And, and you still, you take individual pride uh, in knowing what you're doing. And, and you, don't, you don't need the gigantic following uh, to be proud of what you've done. Did that mean that easier, would you say? I think it was different. Look, again, in, in the local communities, you're well known, but we were always looked at the U.S., the U.S. national team. We were looked at as being a joke, right? I'm, I mean, in terms of playing France or Brazil or Argentina or Germany. And, and again, the way the U.S. national team, both men and women are today, the women are, are the favorites. The men, they have tremendous scrutiny. But in my day, I remember getting a call from U.S. soccer on a Thursday night. And I live in New York. And they said, look, we're going to play a friendly against Italy in Hartford on Saturday. Can you make it to the game? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll drive up there uh, Saturday morning and we'll play against Italy. So there was zero preparation. There was zero investment. It was really just a bunch of, of college kids who were good at soccer uh, playing in, in an arena that they had never experienced before. Wow. I, I, I am not expecting too many calls from the U.S. Soccer Federation asking against Italy. But, you know, <laughs> I, you know I, my phone's always on me. So U.S. Soccer, if you're listening, you know, I still have eligibility. Um, moving forward back to 1978, point you make your debut in the MISL major endorsement with the New York Arrows. To this point, how much have you seen both the game itself and the position? Carter, I loved indoor soccer. I loved it. And and remember, I was just coming off uh, a year where I played with Pelé and Beckenbauer and Carlos. We, we toured the world. First Western team ever to play in China. Uh toured, played at Maracanã in front of 110,000 people. So I was at the height of my career. And there was an indoor exhibition game in Philadelphia, a bunch of all-stars against the Russian army. And that was the beta test for indoor soccer. They, these two promoters, Ed Tepper and Earl Foreman, uh, experienced sport owners but they heard about indoor soccer. They staged the exhibition game, and it was a fantastic success. Now what did they need? They needed a named player to jump leagues, right? And, and I got the call. I flew to New York, negotiated a contract to play for them, and that's how indoor soccer, the major indoor soccer league, started. I had never seen it. 
I helped design the specifications, including the size of the goal. And then I started practicing really on my own in a high school gym. But it turned out to be electrifying. I mean, you again know as a goalkeeper, totally different mentality outdoor soccer in a 90-minute game. Indoor, you're facing 40, 50 shots. You're taking rebounds off the glass, the dasher board. And when you make a save, you jump into your feet and your distribution is, is starting a fast break. So I love indoor soccer. I'm sitting in my office now looking at pictures that I have on the wall, obviously of Pelé and Franz and the guys, but plenty of indoor soccer posters because the atmosphere was electric in places like St. Louis, Checkerdome sold out with 18,000 people screaming and the music playing. Uh, I love I mean, in in your nine years, both in in the MI star evolve along with the position. I think Porter, there were two people who stamped their name on the position of goalkeeper in indoor soccer. I was the first, and then Slobo Ilyevsky tremendous Slavic player who evolved it to a different level because he was so good with his feet on the ball. And so he'd become almost a roaming goalkeeper, that last line of defense playing 20 yards outside of the goal. He's playing like a sweeper and he would start the attack as a playmaker and then scramble back to get into the goal. And look, it's all again, I talked before about geometry and physics and angles even accentuated more for the indoor game. And I, I think I revolutionized the fast break. I had a player they called the Lord of All Indoors, Steve Jungle, and I would literally make a save and give a hand signal, tug on my right ear, touch my stomach, touch my left shoulder. And I was giving him uh, an NFL wide receiver route to run, right? Do a flat do a curl, do a slant. And so we had hand signals and I'd, I'd make the save. Season, I think I had about 15 assists. So look, goalkeepers are creative and you know, Carter, we're the brains in the team. So you figure out obviously every advantage you could get and, and we used it. That's so funny that you mentioned that because I, I played indoor soccer myself through most of high school and I had – one of my teammates and I'm sure he's he's going to listen to this and he's going to he's going to call me the second he listens to it and say I know exactly what you're talking about but we would draw up a play almost exactly like you mentioned like a wide receiver and I would clip it over the top and he would just head it in and it worked almost flawlessly every single time I only had though I did finally it was my last indoor game of my high school career I finally scored a goal and I it was everything I had dreamed of and it was the perfect way to retire as an indoor as an indoor goalkeeper. There you go. So did did you score out of the run of play? Were you on a power play? Or you just got up the field and scored. So I had noticed that the opposing team's goalkeeper wasn't great with his hands. He was letting a lot of stuff sl uh, slip through. Yep. And he would just frequently just wander off the top of his line. And it was literally like a full field chip shot that just and, uh, and fell in the back of the net. Nice, nice. So I, I did it a different way because I was, again, 
I really don't have a big ego, but I was the big superstar on the team with, with Steve Jungle. So if we were to get a penalty kick during the game, I would take the penalty kick because I earned it. I earned the right. So that's I never scored out of the run of play, but I think five or six penalty kicks I, I converted without a miss. Yeah, they didn't they didn't trust me with penalty kicks on my team. <laughs> So, in finally, you know, my last question is because I know uh, we're short on time. In your time since the MISL, both as a player and a manager, and, and since your time as an analyst, what has surprised you the most about how the goalkeeping position is played, coached, and how it's covered in the U.S. today? Well, look, I, I have looked at the game at every level, obviously, as a player, as a broadcaster, uh, the last 20 years. And I'm actually now the new chairman of the new reiteration of that major indoor soccer league uh, that I played in, Major Arena Soccer League. We took over about a month ago myself with Keith Tozer, the commissioner, J.P. Delacamera, the president, and I'm the chairman. So I'll get back to your question, which is how has it evolved? Look, goalkeeping, I, I like to say, and again, you'd understand it, you know, there are poets and they're poets, right? Everybody says they're a po poet. Roses are red, violets are blue. They're goalkeepers and they're goalkeepers. So coaches and executives are still trying to figure it out. They went through a, a decade in Europe where they really felt that goalkeepers should be taller, right? Six foot one to six foot five, dominant in the air. But guess what? I mean, their liability is going to get down, obviously, for that low, quick shot to the corner. So there have been smaller goalkeepers, bigger goalkeepers. They come in all shapes and, and forms. The goalkeeping position for me has obviously changed with the, the rule, you know, many years ago that you've got to play it with your feet, can't be played back and you pick it up. That's changed the position. Where, where a player like, in my day, Slobo Ilyevsky had the advantage in his feet. You still see to this day, you know, poor distribution, goalkeeping, mistakes with the ball played back to the goalkeeper. Back to the U.S., it's a perfect answer to your question. How is Greg Berhalter coaching this U.S. men's national team? Greg likes to play with possession out of the back. So the goalkeeper's got to be good with his feet. Zach Steffen has given, and I love Zach Steffen, he's had some issues. But if your coach is forcing you to play out of the back, not to kick it out, well, Zach Steffen is going to have to adjust. The same with Matt Turner, who played in goal the other night against Haiti, a very unimpressive game by the U.S. Uh, I like Matt Turner, but playing with his feet is, is not a, a great strength of, of Matt Turner. So you have to adjust to the state of the game, Carter, and you've got to adjust to the coach, the style of the team you're playing on. And right now for this U.S. men's national team, the goalkeeping position is wide open. Is it going to be Brad Guzan? Is it going to be Zach Steffen? Is it going to be Horvat? Is it going to be Matt Turner? Well, whoever it is, if Greg Berhalter is insisting they play it out of the back, they better improve at, at that aspect of the game. But I'm bullish on, on the U.S., I'm bullish, bullish on this crop of goalkeepers, and, and goalkeeping is never going to be a problem in this country.
I absolutely agree. Shep, I, I, I genuinely very much appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on today. Carter, my pleasure. You get me anytime, pal. I'll, uh, I'll keep that in mind. Guys, this has been another episode of Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. Thank you very much again to Shep Messing for coming on today. I have been your host, Carter Hawkman. We will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Just for Keeps, 